I couldn't agree more. I, I say the somatics are inherently decolonial because they take you back to that place before mind and body were split, before body and land were split. And it's this place, like you just said, where the wisdom's already in there. So there's no hierarchy, authority. There's no institute that needs to, like the you know, Institute of Psychology. None of that has to exist. It starts with unlearning the, the myth that we need the other to repair. Because we really believe that. And I, I did for a long time. Because logic would think, okay, well, this started the pain. This will end the pain. And that's what we tend to do. And it's also trauma response. But it's what we tend to do in these cases of looking toward the source of rupture for the source of repair. And what I felt in my body when this happened is it doesn't hold the charge because my safety doesn't depend on the repair with them. Today, I have my friend and colleague, Luis Mojica of Holistic Life Navigation on the podcast. Louise is a somatic experiencing therapist and educator, and like me, Louise knows trauma quite intimately. And so in this episode, we really get into the biology of trauma, the somatics of trauma, healing shame, fawning, the rupture and repair process, using music and sound and art as a tool, and so much more. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here. So let's dive in. Luis, welcome to the Depth Work Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy that you're here. So we were old neighbors and kind of fellow practitioners in Woodstock together. And, you know, even in that time, I haven't really had the chance to hear so much about your story. And I'm just curious if you're willing to share maybe some really pivotal transformative moments in your life that led you to being a somatic practitioner and doing the healing work that you're doing now. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It really started with my body. I was born into an intersex body. So there's these three different expressions of intersex. There's genital, there's chromosomal, and there's hormonal. Mine was hormonal. So I was born into a body that produced a lot of estrogen. So from birth until around 15, based on my memory, I was estrogen dominant. And so a lot of my puberty and a lot of my body formation was extremely feminine, you know, very female, I had white hips. I developed breast tissue and then I developed breasts. I felt very internal. I felt very very, very vulnerable and soft. And, and these are the typical things we think of when we think of feminine. But that was my experience just from the high amount of estrogen that was coursing through my body. And so to be born into that body was already such a strange experience because there was there was there were no words for this. No one knew the condition. The doctors had thought that I was overwhelmed by my mother's hormones and that after a year or so it was just going to kind of even out. And it just kept happening. And then they said, well, when you hit puberty, it's all going to change then. And then I hit puberty and nothing changed. I just kept developing breasts. And then I started gaining a lot of weight. And everything I saw my male counterparts going through, my body was doing the opposite. And so it was just super confusing. I was singled out. I was horribly bullied and harassed and experienced sexual traumas and self-hatred and everything that comes from body shame, right? Especially like a sexual gender body shame. It was a whole other experience. And I felt very betrayed. I just didn't understand what my body was doing. That was my initiation because it was such isolation and confusion and pain. And at the same time, a lot of like beautiful ambiguity and uniqueness and creativity. I, I just didn't know how to get in touch with it because of all the shame. And so one day, this is the short story, short version is one day I was sitting down and watching this Joni Mitchell documentary. And I just felt this huge amount of inspiration surge in me. Like I, I never felt this in my life up until this point. I was around 15. And it, it kind of propelled me down the hallway into my bedroom to this guitar I had hanging on the wall. And I didn't play guitar. I just like the way they look. So I had this like cheap $20 guitar from eBay <laughs> just hanging on my wall for looks. 
and I <laughs> and I went up to it and I pulled it off the wall and I just started just like you know intuitively strumming it I had no idea what I was doing and the sound and the vibration the feelings of it were touching all these places that were dissociated and numb like my chest my genitals my belly just this whole kind of core area I had not you know just completely dissociated and numbed away from because of the pain and it felt good it felt like nice against the back of, of the body of the guitar and the vibrations felt soothing and that that was the moment when i think of like when you said pivotal that was the moment when something started turning in a different direction for me beautiful oh i love that and i've actually had the beautiful privilege of hearing you play music before and you can feel oh. that when you play you can see how it moves through you and with you I know that you have had multiple experiences of trauma in your life. And one of the things that I always try to kind of get at through everything that we talk about on this podcast is that there's always multiple ways, multiple frameworks, um, multiple ways that we can understand anything that's happening in our lives, any challenge, any bit of suffering, anything that might get labeled as mental health concerns or mental illness. And I'm curious for you to bullying and changes in your body that feels like a huge part of it. How do you understand some of the roots of your trauma, multiple traumas? You know, I, I think it's it's by understanding the lens, like how I experienced the, even the word trauma. For me, it's it's when this huge amount of life force it just floods the body to the point where it disconnects you from where you are. It's 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 too much for the body to even process that a part of you has to withdraw or shut down. And so when I think about when I think about my own body and my own experience, I, I the word developmental trauma really comes to mind because it would, you know, parts that I, I just skipped over, abuse in daycare. I grew up in Catholic school for the first bunch of years of my life. So there was a lot of a lot of tension and intensity there. I had molestation when I was really young before I even got into deeper forms of sexual violence I would experience. So it was kind of like these moments throughout my development that were completely hidden you know i kept these things shut down inside of me i didn't tell that anyone no one knew i was going through them and I, I would come to learn now that the isolation of being with that pain and the shame and the fear and the overwhelm of the event that's really what i would define as the root of my trauma you know like as my body unfolded and unfurled from a place of constriction and tension my body literally just developed in trauma response. I became diagnosed with Tourette syndrome and nervous tics and ADHD and I had high cholesterol and I had asthma and I had all these chronic autoimmune issues. So, you know, my, my body really, like truly was in a, a biology of trauma for most of my childhood. Mm, biology of trauma. I love that phrase. Yeah. So I love that you brought in shame because mm. I think that shame underlies not only traumatic experiences, but so much of what gets labeled as mental health concerns. We, I mean, people experience such deep levels of shame and that gets mm. piled on top of, you know, cultural and societal expectations. What was it like for you to start to unravel some of that shame and heal? What mm. was that process? Like, yeah, I mean, my relationship to shame came from the events that were traumatic for me. They, they became my identity. And from that, the shame, you know, emerged. So when someone, you know, violated my body, suddenly I was disgusting, right? It became me, my fault, what's wrong with me. And that internalization of the event or the experience as my identity now or my state or my my fault or just it even being me, that that was really the, the like the physical curl of the shame that I got from those events. Like the moment they happened, it was birthed there. And I just lived in that. I think what I what I it's interesting, you know, looking back, I have so much clarity now. But when I first discovered music, when I, again, when I was around 15 in the room that day, I became obsessed, like obsessed. I would play the guitar for hours. It wasn't just like an hour, like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hours. And then when I discovered the piano, it was even more. So I would just spend every single moment of free time I had playing the guitar or the piano and writing songs. 
And it was in that process of songwriting that I, I know this now, I didn't then, that I was actually doing parts work, you know, where I was somatically excavating these characters that had been living in me from these events. And they, it was safe to live on a page, you know, and the poetry that, that was the lyric of the song was safe because it was, it was shrouded, you know, in themes and mythology. Like no one knew what I was talking about, not even me. It was like my, sub- my subconscious was so clever, you know, to let me v- view and witness this part of me without specifically saying, oh, this is the part that was raped. This is the part that was hated. This is the part with the eating disorder. If it would have said that on the page, I would have had a breakdown, you know, at 16. But it was oh, this gorgeous, like, creature, character, dragon that was just so fun to look at and sing. So it was it was that process of that excavating those parts and putting them on paper and then singing them that started creating distance between my identity and a part of me and witnessing the part of me. And I I think I clutched, I clenched onto music for so long because I I believe that that was my mental health, you know, medicine. That was my therapy. If I didn't have that, I I would have had a psychotic break. I mean, I have no doubt. I was so compartmentalized at this point in my life. So to, to have this place for all those compartments to kind of come together and dance dance not cry but like dance was and cry at times but you know to actually celebrate and be like campy and and be something beyond suffering which i was all the time it was life life-saving so that kind of led me out of the shame spiral it took years but it, it led me out yeah yeah beautiful oh, i love that metaphor <laughs> dancing with all of the parts because that is what parts work is you know and we kind of yeah. turn the turn the spotlight onto these parts separate de-identify just a little bit with the parts that feel such uh, extreme pain so when did that for you kind of become a bit more professionalized when did you really kind of find somatics as you mm. practice it now well, so I found somatics. I was about, I was about a decade into working with people via herbs and nutrition and whole foods. I was a whole food nutritionist for a while, and I would say like eight or nine hey. years at this point. Yeah, that's actually a piece that I mean, there's so many aspects of our our stories that we kind of have in common, but that's a piece too. Before I started working with trauma <laughs> survivors, I also started out as an herbalist as well. Mm. For me, that was kind of the natural in. So then, you know, from doing that, because people say to me, like, when did you start your somatic journey? I'm like, that's when I started it. I didn't know it. Right. But as an herbalist, as a nutritionist and an herbalist, you're you're working so intimately with the body, right? You're working on like the bowels and the bladder and the stomach, like you're in the viscera of the person via food and herbs. Mm -hmm. So I already had nine years of private practice of talking about people's like intestines. Like it was so intimate, right? And like like gooey and gross at times. And and it was normal. So to go to somatics, it was like, this is what I've been waiting for. I didn't even know there was a name for it. And it happened, you know, beautifully through my own private practice. I had gone from just purely doing nutritional work into life coaching. Because as you know, when you do nutrition and herbs with people, so many emotional things come up, like attachment to food comes up, relational trauma around food, eating disorders, emotions that the food was, you know, repressing, or even when the herbs start doing their work, what they can unfurl from the bones. So these people would have these huge emotional expressions just from changing their diet, like for a week. And that got me into coaching because I really wanted to play and hold these emotional expressions. And a client said to me, you know, you should really get trained in somatics. And I said, what are somatics? And she said, it's, it's what you do and you don't know you're doing it. And if you were trained in it, you'd really know what you're doing. (laughs) I thought, okay, well, let me go to a therapist that does this first and experience the work. And I went to her and the first session, I told her my like horrific story that I told so many therapists at this point. And she was the only one that interrupted me while I was telling it. She's like, pause, where do you feel in your body? I was, mm. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? No mm. one has ever asked me where I feel anything in my body. Are you kidding me? Mm. And I paused. I was like, in my stomach. And I, that was the first time in my life that I had this moment of my story. As I was saying it, I could feel where it still lived in me. And it was like, you know, the waves parted and I realized, oh, it's not the event. It's how the event's being stored in my body. Like I thought I was broken for life because this event happened. And I just re- I realized, I'm not broken. My body's just, it's stuck inside of me and I have to help and move out. And I was 
first session, I was hooked. I'm like, I need to go get trained in this. So <laughs> that was 2016. Yeah, that was 2016. I started my training. Wow. Which would become mm-hmm. another obsession. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, it it actually it strikes me as as pretty profound that you found somatics to be this kind of opening for you or this this kind of like, whoa, yes, someone gets it. Because I feel like people, especially trauma survivors, can have can certainly have that experience of, oh my God, why has no one ever asked me that before? Or like, wait, I even have a body? What is what is this thing? Mm-hmm. Or like I live in here? What, what is Yeah, that's this? how it felt. <laughs> yeah. But then also I feel like there is not just culturally and socially, but also kind of internally, because a lot of us live for many years in dissociation in order to feel safe. There can also be this immense uh, pushback of like, oh, I I don't want to think about that. Or mm, let's, mm. let's not go there because, there, you know, there's kind of something that can feel a bit unsafe about that. So I just I just found it kind of profound that you said that you that you kind of were just so willing, so ready to to dive in, to go there. I get chills when you say that because I no one's ever said that to me before. And you're you're right. I, I had a friend who took the first course I ever did, like the first course I started teaching three years ago. She, she took the first one. There were 19 people in it. And I remember she said to me, can I give you some feedback? And I said, yeah. And she said, when you tell your story, try to tell it in a way that doesn't make everyone feel like they should have a breakthrough the first time they have their session. It was such good feedback because I I wasn't even trying to market it that way. I just truly had a breakthrough. But it, it's exactly what you just said. It, it's the scariest thing in the world to go into sensations. Something inside of me was so ready at that point. Four years ago, no way. Like I would not have been okay with that. So yeah, that's an interesting observation you made. So how would you describe somatics to folks that maybe are unfamiliar with the term or particularly unfamiliar with somatic experiencing? Ooh, I mean, truly, I would I would describe it as the psychedelic experience with your body. Like <laughs> that's really that's how I experience like the more maybe the more clinical way is you know, you you really learn how to feel how your nervous system and how your body is responding to events around you and holding events from the past and not just feel it, but learn how to self-relate to it and help it shift and help it move and help it transform. And to me, that that is psych- that's what psychedelics are. So I find what's SE and somatic work allows people to do is to have this extremely spiritual experience between the conscious mind and the visceral body. It's its profound to me. I also find somatics to be incredibly subversive to the status quo and traditional mental health systems. I actually, really weird fun fact, I, I recently learned because um, I run a mental health institute, an organization that does uh, continuing education for transformative mental health and really understanding links between mental health and social justice. And so we apply for CE credits quite a bit and we're aware that we are kind of accredited in a way that maybe, you know, as much as we try and we in effect are quite subversive, but we sometimes still have to, you know, follow some of these rules. And one of the rules that the APA has for accreditation is you cannot use the term somatics. You cannot Mm -hmm. use the term somatic in your trainings. And I found that so interesting because I really do think that it's such a liberatory practice. It really kind of cracks open a lot of what we think about traditional mental health frameworks. It is incredibly subversive to say that our body has a wisdom of its own, that we can kind of heal and release shame and pain and trauma. I couldn't agree more. I I say the somatics are inherently decolonial because they take you back to that place before mind and body were split before body and land were split. And it's this place, like you just said, where the wisdom's already in there. So there's no hierarchy, authority. There's no institute that needs to, like the Institute of Psychology. None of that has to exist. When you have that relationship to your body, you have your guide, you have your God right there inside of you. And I think it's extremely subversive when you, especially in, in most cultures, we believe in this external power telling your body what it can and can't do. So I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's really a remembering more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the most profound messages that you've gotten from your body? Oh my gosh, where do I begin? <laughs> They're all flooding in as you're asking. <laughs> I, I think actually what's most profound is this 
big difference between capacity and desire, which I teach a lot. I always thought they were the same thing. And now I've learned how desire, as gorgeous as it is, is very dissociative when it's not in relationship to your capacity. And so what I mean by that is the stories we tell, the goals we have, the image of ourself, our expectations of the future, it's often out of time with where the body is. It's like somatic time traveling. So I've really had a fun, fun practice these last five years, especially noticing like, okay, where's my desire? Where's my capacity? And when does my desire overwhelm my capacity, right? And it's simple things like sitting at dinner with a friend and in my mind, thinking thoughts like, I love this person. This is so much fun. I should do this all the time. And then noticing my body, like, get me the fuck out of here. Like, I want to go home right now and take a bath. And I'm noticing this interesting animal body, like this sovereign being, and this mind that's really limitless. So I think that really the most profound thing is that this mind is so limitless. It can go anywhere, but the body is actually quite limited. It's supposed to be. It, it can't go everywhere. It runs into to walls. You know, it can't go through walls. My mind can see through this wall. I know it's on the other side. So it's interesting to, to play with how do I balance having this limitless mind and spirit and having this very limited body. That, that's been the most profound thing for me. Yeah. Oh, that's such a fun, fun. vision. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's endlessly fun. I love it so much. Yeah. And it, it also kind of brings me to the idea that, I mean, our minds can only, we can only do what we do. We can only explore all these possibilities because we have the boundary of this body, yes. because we have those kind of limitations. And we're, we're trained to kind of think of it as a limit, but actually the body is the space of possibility. It allows us to do an experience experience and feel what we're here to do. <laughs> it's it's so true. And we, earlier when I said decolonial, one of my teachers, Amber McSeal, talks about decolonizing the psyche. It's a big part of her work. And the way I've learned about colonization from her is not just the events, current and past, but the actual moment of am I relating or am I dominating? And when I think of somatics, it's all about, am I relating or dominating this body? And then, of course, from there, other bodies and lands. And so what you just said was exactly right. It's like we, we've we uh, culturally been taught to even be rewarded when we break the boundaries of the body, when we hurt the body, when we numb out the body to get through a progress you know, or accomplishments. And it's, it's a really dominant way to relate to a, a living being that you inhabit. And so if that's the norm and we're even rewarded for it, like, no wonder so many of our systems are also really dominant. Like, of course they are. They're made of thousands and millions of bodies that are dominating themselves. How are they not going to do that to others? How, would, how do you define relating kind of in this framework of relating versus dominating? What's the other That's option? Great question. I define an experience relating as a pause. And so in that pause, and this is where my animism comes in. I'm very animistic. What I'm looking at... I don't have control over. I don't have entitlement of its resources. I don't have, I don't own it. That being is, I'm looking at like a keyboard. <laughs> that being is separate from me and, and not separate in the way where we can't connect or we're not one, right? In that way we think of, but it has its own life force, its own ruling, its own sovereignty. It has its own history, has nothing to do with me. So when I'm coming in contact with it, I want to get to know this being. I'm curious, does this being want what I want? And that to me is really a conscious relationship of pausing and noticing, well, what's the consent here? Or what's the desire? Or what's the, the capacity or story about me? Rather than that's mine, right? Not even thinking that it has its own, its own life form or life source or interests, you know, outside of what I think mine are. Yeah, beautiful. Oof, I love that. That also brought me back to what we had talked about in terms of herbalism and nutrition and kind of the natural world where I would say that's where I really started to kind of deconstruct this colonial mindset when I started working with herbs and realizing they do what they do inside of our bodies because they contain a life force in and of themselves, a mm. life force that is so unique and pervasive and that, you know, exists whether or not we're here doing what we're doing around it. So yeah. what you just said was the key for me. It exists whether I'm here or not. 
it, that's such a relational dynamic rather than the dominant one. Like you need me to exist. You know, it's it's this thing where like I'm the central species or person in the room. Like, no, you actually do fine without me. We can do amazing things together, but you also are there without me. And I love that you brought in herbs because they're a great relational example. You know, the the constituents of their bodies relate to our bodies. Same thing with nutrition. It's a brilliant relationship. And I just, I just love that. So what would you say as now a somatic practitioner, what's kind of some of the dominant themes that you work with or through with some of your clients? What do you notice yourself kind of speaking to or teaching on the most? Two things. I would say uh, overcouplings and something that I call rupture and repair, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I, don't, I don't call it rupture and repair. It's cycles of rupture and repair is the proper name, but I just say rupture and repair. Uh, those are the two things I, I work with the most because overcouplings, it took me a while to fully get them in my body. Like I got them intellectually, but to, to understand that an overcoupling is essentially your body carrying the past inside of it and projecting it on everything you're experiencing. That was huge for me because I couldn't be in a room with a straight man and feel safe ever until I learned how to uncouple because of all the trauma and sexual and bullying I had from straight men. They were like my demographic I overcoupled harm with. So there was this constant hypervigilance, not feeling safe in my body, not wanting to go into certain rooms or groups or, you know, situations, jobs, you name it, if they weren't like mostly female or queer, like those were the two I felt safe with. So learning what an overcoupling was, was, it was huge for my body. And then when I was able to uncouple and feel that liberation in myself, like earlier you said liberatory, it was so liberatory to be like, oh, there's a straight man. I don't know anything about him. I'm going to let him show me who he is first before my body says you're this because I've experienced this. That was huge. So when people come into my practice or in the groups I have, it's so clear now because I've been with mine for so long, what's being overcoupled, what isn't. And to teach that to people, it's like they finally get a break from hypervigilance because their body's able to see, oh, I'm in the I don't know yet rather than I know. And it's this very different somatic experience. Uh, and that goes with rupture, you know, not feeling safe relationally with somebody, how to repair that, especially when the other one doesn't want to, or doesn't know how to, I, I would say the most, probably like the second source of suffering that I've seen come through my doors are people trying to go to the very people that hurt them for repair over and over and over again. And to teach them they're allowed to orient elsewhere is like a new way of living. Oh, yes. <laughs> Does that resonate for you? <laughs> I mean, exactly what you said about, go, you know, turning over and over again to the people or I would even maybe say the the archetypes to it, it. It's often for trauma survivors, the person who can't give you, didn't give you, harmed you, didn't give you, couldn't give you what you needed, that you maybe continue to kind of move towards or ask for that from. But then I think, you know, through, you've talked about projections, through some of these projections, we also can, I mean, you know, Freud called this repetition compulsion there, you know, there's all these other terms for it, but then we kind of go on to seek other people with similar qualities that we then also desire to kind of replay this similar relational dynamic with, to try to undo the original trauma or to try to get a different result often to our detriment. Sometimes it works. Often it doesn't. I, I see that quite a bit with, with in myself and with many other trauma survivors. So say more about that piece. What's, what's some of the things that you kind of work with people on there? Well, it starts with, it starts with unlearning the, the myth that we need the other to repair because we really believe that. And I, I did for a long time because logic would think, okay, well, this started the pain, this will end the pain. Yeah. And what's so interesting, what I would start to learn in my own body and in, in these bodies of people I worked with were the person, let's say that started, that created the rupture, the abuse, they, the person would die. Like their physical body would be off this planet and the person's body still felt the same. And so it was so clear, especially after my own somatic experiences, how it was in them. It wasn't in the other to unlock. It was in themselves to unlock. And that can be misconstrued into like isolationism. I don't see it that way at all. 
I see it as reorienting. So isolationism would say like, no one can help me. I have to do it myself. That's a trauma response. Reorienting is like a lot of people are really helpful. I'm just orienting to the few people that can't help me. <laughs> and that's what we tend to do. And that's also trauma response. But it's what we tend to do in these cases of looking toward the source of rupture for the source of repair. So when people actually practice in real time with me, like in 10 minutes, it's not a huge practice. They can feel the parts of them that aren't rupturing with this person. And they can start to gain this feeling of homeostasis and, and what I call somatic forgiveness, which isn't like, I forgive you for hurting me. It's like, I feel it's not happening now, right? Like the body somatically releases what was happening just in this moment by let's say looking at the plant in front of you. And when people feel that sense of peace and ease, they're like, wow, the the heal, the actual repair is in my body. I don't need this person that hurt me to help me repair or to say sorry or any of that. It happens in me. And, and doing conflict work for years with people getting divorced, with families, with uh, businesses, business partners, partners, like every everyone you can imagine. I would see people truly remorseful for harm they caused and like sobbing with apologies and the other person's body not budging. And right. So like those situations taught me, even with accountability, even with remorse, even with death, the repair still didn't happen. It was within the person that had the rupture. Absolutely. And it's, I think, as you said, it's our relationship to ourselves that changes. That's right. And therefore our perception of the world and those around us. Yeah. Yeah. So that was your experience as well. Like you, you witnessed that with people and yourself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All the time. Because I, I work quite a bit as, as also a sexual trauma survivor, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and incest. I work with a lot of other clients who have had those experiences. And that, that is so, you know, so common to feel like, or, or to just, I have a lot of people come with the question of what do, what do I do in terms of my relationship to my family? It may not even be the person who caused the harm. It may be the betrayal trauma that is kind of pervasive throughout the entire family context. You know, those who kind of didn't protect them or save them or, or, you know, or even stand by their side and and say, I believe you, or I hear you. And so people often have that question of, well, like, what do I do with that? Do I, do I try to forgive? Do I try to find compassion? Do I stay in relationship even with it, if it harms me? Do I try to repair? And of course, yeah, people very naturally have this idea that they cannot heal until they figure out, you know, what they want their relationship to those family members or to those people to be. And that hasn't been my experience or what I've seen with people. I've seen people absolutely fully and completely heal and change their relationship to themselves, their bodies, spirit, everything around them. And that's the part that matters. And it's, it's interesting because it's not as if your relationship to those people no longer matters. It's just, it, it just doesn't hold as much of a charge anymore. That's and exactly a right. A lot of folks don't believe that that's possible, but it's absolutely. That's right. Well, I like how you said that too. When you say it's not that it doesn't matter, it doesn't hold the charge. And what I felt in my body when this happened is it doesn't hold the charge because my safety doesn't depend on the repair with them. So it's like, oh, I don't have the charge because there's no desperation. It's I have a hundred people now that can hold me perfectly when before I was looking at this one person that couldn't. So absolutely, I think of that person and there's little to no charge, which shocking. Like I couldn't even cross the state border before I did this work. Because if I even went into the state I grew up in, my body would like turn, like get on fire, it felt like. For me to be able to be in the same room as some of these people and have very little charge, I'm like, I'm a believer, sign me up. I want to teach more people, <laughs> you know? Yes, absolutely. I love that. Love that. I also feel like this is kind of related to another piece that I think you talk about so well about fawning. And I mean, kind of fawning in a, in a broad sense, you talk quite a bit and teach a lot about sexual fawning, 
But I've also heard you just talk about more generally this, this nervous system response that often gets considered people pleasing. We have all these kind of other terms for it, appeasing, but it's a piece that I feel like culturally we didn't talk about until maybe like five years ago. We always had the, you know, fight, flight, freeze, and nervous system responses. No one was ever talking about fawning or appeasing. So yeah, tell me a bit about what you enjoy teaching about that. Oh, God, I love teaching about fawning. <laughs> I love it so much. I, I I get so enmeshed when I'm teaching about fawning because I love watching people get free of what I was so burdened by forever. And I mean, I was a, I call myself a gladiator level fawner because I was so good at it. And it was, it was, it was like, it was like the only state I knew, right? I either could fawn or I'd have to completely isolate. And I usually couldn't isolate until I got a migraine from fawning. So it was like my body would have to actually shut me down because my boundaries were so blurry from fawning. Yes. And and when you asked earlier about the shame and, and that that how part of that lifting and part of coming out of that, it was learning about the fawn response. And you're spot on. I learned it about six years ago and no one even cared. They kind of like breezed over it when they were teaching. I'm like, wait a minute, that's the, can we go back? Can we go back to page four? Like, no, no, we're more interested in fight or flight. I'm like, no, like fawning. What, what can we talk about that a little more? And no one gave a fuck. Yeah. Like, this is in the fabric of our culture is the fawning yes. mechanism. And so what really rocked me about it, what, what like lit me up, was all those years of identifying and being in a family system where many identify with being the nice one, the fixer. And they were all just fawning. And to learn that fawning was this like automative, intelligent trauma response that was like misunderstanding when to turn on and off, that healed so like years of shame and embarrassment. Because now I knew, okay, there's a purpose behind it. My body's confused when it's happening and I'm not even driving. I'm not in the seat when this is occurring. I'm unconscious. I'm dissociated. It's till afterwards when I would say, why did I say yes? Why was I nodding for 10 minutes when I didn't care? Like, why was I laughing when I was grossed out? You know, it was like those moments afterward I was learning. So when I, when I finally accessed the somatic experience of the fawning mechanism, when I could feel the tension in me, but I could feel the hybrid of the freeze with the fawn, these, these different experiences in my bones. I was like, I need to spread this on every rooftop in America mm-hmm. and beyond <laughs> that everyone can learn, you know, what it is they're doing and why. And it's been so fun and, and satisfying to see people go from identifying with, I have to be the nice one to, oh, it's something my body's doing because it's scared especially sexual fawning because a decade of my life was pure sexual fawning. And I thought I liked all these things. and My body hated these things. I was just kind of doing them to appease the person because when you're sexually violated, especially young, you learn smart tactics to not get killed or hurt. And so my body really learned that. I'll pause there. There's so much we can go into. Where, 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 where does that go for you? Yes. Well, I particularly want to hear about what are some of the misconceptions about fawning that people have? Because now in kind of an Instagram age of pop psychology, we have all these very quite reductionist views of things like boundaries and attachment styles. And I think fawning is one of those. And I I feel like it's quite common for people to not just experience a lot of shame around fawning, but also to be quite dismissive too about, you know, oh, I'm just a people pleaser or, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, this is just something that happens. And as you said, it is, it is culturally, societally so pervasive and it's pervasive because it's advantageous to have groups of people (laughs) who are fawners, Mm -hmm. who are, you know, hyperproductive because they aren't aware of their, you know, limits and their boundaries and what their bodies need and all of that. So yeah, tell us about, you know, maybe some misconceptions about fawning and how you might reframe it in terms of what's really important for people to know about this. Mm. Oh goodness. Yeah. I'm just so many things. The first thing is fawning is ancient, right? 
And this helps people really understand it. When we see it just as like a social societal thing, we can blame it on society really quickly. Society has definitely nurtured it more. And like you said, advantageous for sure has rewarded it. And so it's become bloated and like a part of the, even the archetype of being like a good citizen or person, but it's ancient. It's, it's like, if you imagine walking in the forest and a cheetah pops out and your hands go in front of you and you smell like nice, nice. And you're backing up like that's the fawning mechanism. So, (laughs) so the body doesn't just fawn with other humans. It fawns with any creature that your life is in their hands because you're trying to calm down their nervous system. So the first thing is, like you said, not just throwing it off as like a pupil pleaser. It's so much more sophisticated than that. It, it tugs on the the resonance of the nervous system, somatic empathy, and mirror neurons. So when I'm in front of someone who could hate me, like want to end my life, and I can charm them into liking me, that's the fawning response. My smile, my tone of voice, my agreeing with them, my doing what they want to do with my body, or like driving them where they want me to drive them. Hostage situations, like these are moments where the, the person's nervous system depending on how dysregulated it gets, decides on if you live or or die, right? If you survive that situation or not. So you're actually, through the fawning mechanism, your body is automatically co-regulating. It's it's an imitation of connection. So the other body starts down-regulating. And as that body down-regulates, their executive function comes online and they realize, I don't want to hurt this person and go to jail. Or, oh, maybe they like me. No one's ever liked me. You know, this is me humanizing the quote criminal. I'm going to become friends with this person and trust them to go to the store. Then they run away and get help. You know, this is how fawning mechanisms help us. So for us to learn that this is, again, this is biochemical. It's biological. It's not just like, oh, I just, I'm a people pleaser. It's my body is stuck in the reflexive magic of calming down other bodies. When we realize that's what's happening, then we start to notice, oh, I don't always have to calm it. Like this, like my mother's body isn't going to kill me. It overwhelms me. It triggers me, but I'm not threatened by her body. I don't have to fawn right now. Whereas this person with a weapon, this is a great time to fawn. So when you play with even knowing fawning has its place, you start respecting it instead of just tossing it away as this like nuisance that you do. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the other things that I've heard too about fawning, which I think this term in particular that I'm about to say can be often used to kind of shame or blame ourselves or other people. And I I never used it in that way. But one of the things that really started to shift the way that I think about fawning is yes, it being a very wise physiological response that we have, but also realizing you know, when you talk about kind of charming and like the, the way that we try to do this, I think of people pleasing now as, as quite manipulative. And I don't mm-hmm. mean manipulative in this very, you know, that means that you're a bad person mm-hmm. or that means, you know, children are quite manipulative. Manipulative mm-hmm. just means, you know, we're trying to get our needs met. We're trying to do anything that we can to meet our needs. And when I realized that, oh, I'm actually trying to manipulate this person into liking me so that I can feel safe that was when things started to really shift for me. Mm-hmm. And I realized I don't need that. I don't need them to, you know, like me, to be charmed by me, to respond or behave the way that I want them to respond or behave. I get to feel safe in my body regardless of that. And so that's what I kind of chose to focus on. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you use that word because I use the same word and I always preface it the same way because we've overcoupled it as like, I'm malicious if I'm manipulative and that's not mm-hmm. the case here. It's reflexive, but it's a reflexive manipulation. And the core of the word manipulation just means to change something, to transform something. I think literally it means to change something with your hands, like manipulation. And so when you think of a nervous system manipulation, I'm changing, I'm transforming the field so you like me. I'm doing the thing that will make your body or you like me. And what I found so humbling about the phone response is other people don't know they're breaking my boundaries. I'm giving them such rewards and like reassurance and like seeming consent that I'm fine with everything going on. And that was very healing for me because when I had all this anger of like, why don't people ever ask me how I'm doing? You know, why don't they ever listen to my story? I realized I don't even give them a chance to know I have a story. I'm so, my body's so reflexively mirroring them and their needs 
that they don't even know there's another person there. I'm just a mirror at this point. So mm-hmm. that helped me not have like resentment and anger toward these people. And just like you said, really understand what was happening there. Reflexive manipulation was occurring. What would a relationship be like without that manipulation? What if it was just like direct? Where would that go? How would that feel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's life-changing for our relationships. And going back to the concept of relating, true, authentic relating requires an awareness of that, that we are Mm -hmm. being really honest, even with our body, with our physiology. Yeah. Even you saying that when you say awareness, it's like I hear, for me, I can't be fully aware unless I'm embodied. Because if I'm telling you, like, I can't wait to see you on Friday, and I don't notice the pit in my stomach when I say that, how can I even be honest with you and say, whoa, wait a minute, actually, something's going on, right? So the the embodiment helps has helped me so much become more authentic and more more transparent. Is that your Uh, experience too? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I mean, I spent as a trauma survivor, so much of my life outside of my body, it was so much safer. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame younger me for doing that. That was also a very wise response. Dissociation, flight is, is a very wise nervous system response, but it wasn't until I could feel myself. So I studied somatics, but from a different lens, I was taught by Judith Blackstone in the realization process. So it's, it's a bit more of kind of a spiritual, maybe a bit more kind of Zen Buddhist non-dual approach Mm, to embodiment. But it was her saying the words, now feel yourself inhabit your body. Feel yourself fill your whole, the whole internal space of your body with your awareness, with your consciousness. And that, I, I don't know, there was something about me like feeling the edges of my body, filling up my whole body with my awareness. There was something about those words that for me was really revolutionary and kind of was a a bit of a backdoor into somatics because I was one of those people that when I had a somatic therapist and she said, well, how does your body feel about that? I responded with anger. I was like, we are not talking. <laughs> we are not going there. Yeah, you know, totally. I was like 18, 19. I, <laughs> I couldn't, I could not. So this was a way, yeah, for me of just like, oh, wow. Oh, there, oh, there is internal space. How are my organs feeling? And then mm. I started engaging in kind of body talk, really, really communicating with my body and letting my body communicate with me. And now my biggest somatic practice is breathwork. I'm a breathwork facilitator mm. and holotropic breathwork was revolutionary for me, experiencing um, the wisdom of the body through the subconscious because our bodies talk to us in so many different ways. I get communications from my body in my dreams. I get them in my meditations. I I get them in, you know, feeling signals throughout the day. So yeah, I, I don't think that I was having real authentic relationships with other people, other bodies until I really understood that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I just love how you said the body speaks in so many ways because it's one of my teacher's always cites this study that 95% of all communication is nonverbal. And so there's so much of our bodies like sensation, dreams, breathing, temperature changes. I mean, like so many realms that we don't even cognitively understand that the body is speaking to us. And that's why it feels so psychedelic to me, somatic work. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that phrase. So Tell us where we can find out about your work, what you have coming up, your courses. Yeah. So the next course is October 30th is when it begins and registration opens for that mid-October. We're doing this really cool thing my team and I called The Somatic Experience. It's like a four-hour free mini festival with us where we're just virtual diving into these four foundations that we found with trauma and stress healing that we want to teach people. And it's for people that are interested in the course and want to get a taste of us. But it's also for people that either have already taken it, can't afford it, don't want to take it, you know, for whatever reason they can dive in for six weeks that can get something really amazing in four hours. And we're doing that in, I think that's early October, October 7th. Yeah. So that's, that's what's coming up right on the horizon. 
everything I do can be found at holisticlifenavigation.com. My Instagram is there. My podcast is there. My events are there. Everything's on the website. Beautiful. Yes. And in your work or also in your personal life, what are some of the kind of things that you're excited about, questions that you've been asking yourself? Hmm. It's kind of on the edges for you. What a great question. You know, it's really interesting. I've been wanting to write a book for like four years and I'm just starting to like go into the pages of this book and I have a really wonderful mentor and editor. So he's holding this beautiful container for me to kind of lead me into that realm because I'm not, I'm a writer, but I'm not an author if you catch my drift. So I'm really learning that difference. And for some reason going into this realm it just keeps beckoning for timelessness. It's like, it just keeps beckoning for no cell phone and no schedule and just like liminal spaciousness. And it takes me back to when I was 19. It was my first memory of living alone. You know, that feeling when you first live alone and leave your family and friends and everybody, you know, and you're just alone and it feels so good. And I, my body keeps taking me back to those years of what that was like, you know, just to be in that space. And I, I'm craving it so much right now. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm, I'm just craving, I'm craving being unknown and not having a career and just being so, so timeless and just kind of drifting. So when you say edge, I literally feel like the edges of my body kind of yearning for that. And I also feel like it's my edge right now because I've been in the professional world and the public world now for so long that I I haven't experienced that in a long time besides going into myself or sitting in a forest, right? To encompass your whole life in that way. You know, as a parent, all these things. I haven't felt that in so long. So that's, that's where I am right now. Interesting. Do you have any ideas of what maybe might give you a semblance of that? Any adventures coming up? Well, yeah, so I'm going to Puerto Rico next week, Tuesday night, we're leaving my wife and my daughter and I, and whenever I go there, I always feel that feeling of timelessness. I feel this complete, just like everything's slower. There's more space. The culture is so familiar. Part of my family's Puerto Rican. So it just feels like in my heart and one of the ancestral lands, it's nice to go back to it and stand on it. The beach, right? It, it literally does that thing visually where it's just this spacious. So I'm going there with the intentions of invoking that. And then in my bones, bringing that back and nurturing that more into my life here. Heck yes. So great. Well, yeah. Any last things before we close? I know. I just want to thank you because the space you hold is so, it's so tender and it feels so nurturing. I feel like I'm a nice warm bathtub. It's like so easy to talk to you and let things unfold. So I, I thank you for bringing that here. Oh, thank you. I I actually feel slightly different. I feel like excited and bubbly and like everything <laughs> that you're like talking about. I just feel like I can reach out and grasp it and feel it. And it just so intellectually stimulating for me. So thank you. I'm so glad you're so welcome. Thank you, love. I'm so grateful to you for being here. I also have something for you to take with you. It's a workbook and meditation bundle called Reclaiming All Parts of You. I created it as someone who really resonates with moving through a lot of shame, insecurity, and self-doubt to really tackle these issues so that you can stop hiding and feel free to express more of you. The link to that is in the description below. It's free. You can just sign up with your email. And if you loved this episode or this podcast, please let me know. I would love it if you left me a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me know what you liked and how it supported you. And I love hearing from you in general. So if you have a question for me or want me to talk about a specific topic on this podcast, send me an email and let me know. Until next time.